Psalm 92, follow along as I read beginning in verse 1. It is good, everybody say good, to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your loving kindness in the morning and your faithfulness every night on an instrument of ten strings, on the lute and on the harp, with harmonious sound. For you, Lord, have made me glad through your work. I will triumph in the works of your hands. Let's pray together. Lord, you tell us in your word that you have put a new song in our hearts. And we're so thankful of that. Lord, for many of us, (laughs) the song in our heart was the, the blues. But Lord, you have done a work in saving us, touching us, giving us an incredible hope and future. And so I pray today that our hearts would be encouraged and built up as we consider this psalm. In Jesus' name, amen. The psalmist declares here that it is good to give thanks to the Lord to sing praises to his name, to declare his loving kindness in the morning and his faithfulness every single night, and to do it with musical instruments. I'm so thankful for the very gifted people who lead us in worship up here, aren't you guys? I mean, such a great team. Great team of people donating their time as part of their worship to help us in worshiping the Lord. And there's something special and very amazing that happens when God's people come together like this to worship the Lord. In fact, I want you to notice how the psalmist describes it down in verse 12. Notice what he says, The righteous shall flourish like a palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. And those who are planted in the house of the Lord, like you guys are right now this morning, they shall flourish in the courts of our God. They shall still bear fruit in old age, and they shall be fresh and flourishing to declare that the Lord is upright, that he is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. I love this passage. That those who plant themselves in the house of the Lord for the purpose of offering up praise to the Lord, the psalmist says that they will be like palm trees and they will be like cedar trees. And there's a powerful truth that is illustrated in this analogy of the palm trees and the cedar trees. And I don't want you to miss this. You see, palm trees grow in hot deserty regions, okay? Palm Springs, Palm Desert. We live in you know a place where it can get really, really hot. And, and, and palm trees, they grow in the sunshine is the idea. But the cedar trees, they grow up in the mountains and in the forest. They grow in places where it can literally get really, really cold, where the climate 
changes drastically. And notice it says that the point of, of this is, is that those who are, are planting themselves in the house of the Lord to give praise to the Lord, the idea in using these two trees is that they are going to be people who are flourishing in every season of life. In the hot times when there's heavy trials going on, but also in the cold seasons when, when things are just difficult. They are going to be people who are flourishing and bearing fruit even into their old age. Can I get an amen on that one? <laughs> so today I want us to consider this idea of worship. I want to talk about the why and the how of worship, why we do it and how we do it, um, how we're to do it correctly, both individually and as a church family. So if you're taking notes, I I want you to jot down four things, four reasons why we worship. Number one is we worship because worship delights our Heavenly Father. I love Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17, that says, The Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one, will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Isn't that an amazing thought? That when we gather together like this, that, that God himself comes and he is dwelling in our midst and he's rejoicing over us with gladness and with singing, man, it's such an amazing thing. My son Aaron, who is going to be preaching next Sunday, um, he's in town from Oklahoma And if you've never heard Aaron, I want to encourage you to come out because God has gifted him as a preacher and Bible teacher, and um, we're going to have a lot of fun uh, next week. I want you to come and hear him. He's going to continue our our psalm series. Well, he's out here with his family, and um, we are getting away this week. We have a friend that has a vacation house out on a, a lake, and so he's letting us use it, and we're out there. In fact, they're all out there right now, and um, Aaron and his family, my daughter Amanda and her family, and uh, my daughter Amy and, and her son Josiah, we're, we're all gathered out there, and I just love it when I get all my kids together. I love it when I have my adult kids and I'm, you know, watching them. I just sit back and a big smile on my face as they're talking and interacting and laughing. And now, you know, it's the grandkids that are getting together and talking. And well, actually, uh, Lennon and Jack don't talk yet, but Josiah's talking and, and, and they're all, I mean, they're, it's like, you know, 18 months and six months. So um, anyway, but everybody together. And I look at it and I'm like, man, this is right. Well, that's how our Heavenly Father feels. When we come together like this to seek His face and worship His name, that He is like, this is right. In fact, Psalm 22 verse 3 tells us this, that God inhabits the praises of his people. And the word inhabits literally means that God is enthroned in our praises. So think about this. When we gather together like this and we're lifting up the name of the Lord, it says that God comes and literally sets up his throne. He inhabits, he's enthroned in the praises of his people. Now, don't get the idea that God shows up and is enthroned because in some way he is insecure and he needs us to tell us how great he is. Not at all. 
It's not like he comes into this place and hears us singing and declaring his greatness. And he's not like, tell me more, tell me more. No, no, not at all. God is very secure in who he is. He doesn't need any validation from us. Now, we, on the other hand, we need to be validated, right? We love to be affirmed. My grandson, Josiah, he's four, and he lives with us right now. And Josiah is a very affectionate little boy. So many, many times, not every day, but probably at least five days a week, he'll come up to me, put his arms around me and say, Poppy, I love you. It just melts my heart. I'm like, oh, I love you too, Josiah. Now, if several days go by and he hasn't told me that, I pull him close and I'm like, I whisper in his ear, Josiah, Poppy loves you. And then I wait. <laughs> Come on, you can say it, you know? And he'll say, Poppy, I, I love you too. Now, that, that's us. We need and, and we enjoy that type of, of validation. But God, he, he doesn't need. That's not how he operates. He's totally secure in who he is. So here's the question. Why then does our worship bless him? Why does our praise delight in him so, or delight him so much? And the answer is, is it delights him really for us. You see, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, it says, All things were created by him and for him. Revelation chapter 4, verse 11 says, You are worthy, O Lord God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created everything, and it's for your pleasure that they exist and were created. We exist for him. We were made to live in an intimate relationship with God. But here's what happens. When God made the very first human being, Adam, there in the book of Genesis, it tells us, think about this, that Adam and God literally took walks together in the coolness of the day. It's like God would show up and they'd say, let's go for a walk. And, 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 and they would just be, you know, walking along. I don't know if they held hands or, you know, but it was like just an intimate father-son kind of, you know, taking a walk. But then Adam sinned. He rebelled against God. He did the thing that God told him not to do. And the Bible says that sin entered into the world at that point. And also a separation took place. Like a wall was put up between God and man so that there couldn't be that intimacy. God wasn't coming into the garden anymore to walk with Adam. But God, because he so desires that type of relationship with us, he did something to break down that wall. He sent his son, Jesus, his beloved son, to come from heaven to this earth to become a man so that he could go to a cross where he would die upon that cross to pay the price for all the sins of humanity, not just Adam, but all of us and every human being after Adam who would rebel against God that, that Jesus would come and he would pay the price 
to make a way for forgiven man, those who would put their faith in Jesus, to be put back and restored into a relationship with God and an intimate relationship with God. And, and for all of us who have done that, we, we know just the beauty of knowing our sins have been forgiven, our guilt has been removed, and now we can know God and know that His Spirit is now living inside of us. And if you've never encountered that, I want to encourage you today to open up your heart, put your faith in Jesus. But as wonderful as our relationship is now, it's still at a distance in the sense that we don't see God. We can't feel God. We can't touch God physically. One day, the Bible says we are going to see him face to face, and we're looking forward to that day and that time, but that's not right now. And so, worship... When we worship, when we lift up our voices in praise, when we gather like this, it is really one of the most intimate experiences that we can have with the Lord. That it gives us this opportunity, worship does, to enter into an intimacy and experience a relationship with God in maybe the the, the fullest of that intimacy. It happens through what we call worship. In fact, in the Greek New Testament, the word for worship is proskuneo. It literally means to turn and kiss. So it's telling us that worship is this thing of intimacy. It's this thing of affection. It's us turning, in a sense, kissing the Lord. And so we're engaging in worship. That's what's happening. And here's what's interesting. In John chapter 4, Jesus is having a conversation about worship with a woman in the city of Samaria. And as they're talking about worship, Jesus says this. He says that the true worshipers are those who worship the Lord in spirit and in truth, and then he says, and the Lord is seeking those who will worship him in that way. Now, the word in spirit means in sincerity. So the idea is like a full heart. It's like like somebody telling you that they love you, and it's not just words. It's not just, I love you, man, but it's like they really, you know they mean it. It's like that's in sincerity, and in truth is according to God's word, according to how he's laid out that we should approach him and seek him. So in sincerity, we're not just going through the motions, but it's, it's our heart and our affection being directed towards the Lord. But I want you to notice that phrase where it says that God is seeking those who will worship him in that way. The idea is he comes into a setting like this and he's seeking, he's looking for those who are going to worship him in spirit and in truth and it delights him because when we do that we are taking full advantage of the relationship that Jesus made a way for us to have with God by going to the cross and dying on the cross for our sins it delights God because we're valuing that relationship it delights him because he knows that it has a way of centering us and putting all of life really in perspective. You see, our whole lives, we are constantly battling the challenge, the temptation, the struggle to put self on the throne, to live for ourselves. But our Heavenly Father, who loves us so much, He knows how empty that is. 
He knows how when we try to live for self, that we're never ever going to be satisfied, that, that we are becoming lesser than what we were created and designed to be. But when we worship, we're saying, Lord, you're the king. I exist for you, not you for me. And that's the best thing for us. He created us for that. He sent Jesus to come and make a way for us to be able to experience that. So worship is good because it delights our Heavenly Father. Number two, worship develops our church family. When we come together, I often think of the different types of people who call Calvary Vista their church home. People of all different ages. People from all different ethnic backgrounds, people from all different economic backgrounds, people from all different family backgrounds. A very diverse group of people call this church their church family. But it's interesting, no matter what our diversities and differences are, all of that gets put aside when we come into this place and we lift up our hearts and we lift up our voices to worship our King. When we come together, we're basically saying that we're here to worship and express our love for Him. There's something amazing that happens among us. In that moment and in this time, in fact, there's a great example of this in 2 Chronicles chapter 5. In fact, why don't you turn there, a few books to your left, 2 Chronicles chapter 5, I want to pick it up in verse 13. We're going to read about an experience, an event that took place among the nation of Israel. And I want, I want you to just catch a couple of the things here. Second Chronicles chapter 5, verse 13. So it's First and Second Samuel, First and Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles chapter 5 says this, And it came to pass when the trumpeters and the singers were as one, note that, to make one sound, to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and the cymbals and the instruments of music and praised the Lord, saying, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. And then it says, and the house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house. When did the glory of the Lord fill the house? When they came together as one to make one sound in singing and praising and lifting up the name of God. That's what happens, church, when we worship together. When we worship together, I lose something of me. It's coming together and saying, I'm here for someone bigger than myself. And we're turning our attention toward him. Peter put it this way, that we become these living stones that are being formed together as a building of God that is designed in order to offer up praise to him. So worship, it delights our Heavenly Father. It develops our church family. Number three, it defeats our foe. And again, we see a great picture of this in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Why don't you turn there? 2 Chronicles chapter 20, a few, few verses over. And it's there that we see that the armies of Ammon and Moab 
and Mount Seir were coming against the people of Judah. And King Jehoshaphat, who was a godly king, was the king of Judah. And it says that he sought the Lord. And this is what God told him. God told him to assemble the worship leaders and have them go out before the army, singing, offering up praise. Can you imagine that today? We're going into battle. Like we're going to go invade finally, you know, we're going to invade maybe, you know, some, some country. We're going to go help the Ukrainians or something like that. And, and, you know, our president says, okay, I want, I want to get a bunch of church worship teams together and I want them to go out before the army. How crazy would that be? Like we would be like, okay, he really has lost his mind, right? You know, but this is what happened. And I want to read to you what took place. Verse 20. It says, so they rose early in the morning and they went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, hear me, O Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem, believe in the Lord your God and you shall be established. Believe in his prophets and you shall prosper. I think that's a word for somebody here today. God's saying to you, hey, you need to believe. You need to believe in me. You need to believe in my word. You need to grab a hold of that. And then he says, verse 21, and when they had consulted with the people, he appointed those who should sing to the Lord, the worshipers, in other words, and who should praise the beauty of his holiness. And as they went out before the army and were saying, praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. It says, now, when they began to sing and to praise, the Lord set ambushes against the people of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir who had come against Judah, and they were defeated. For the people of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir to utterly kill and destroy them. When they had made an end to the inhabitants of Seir, they helped destroy one another. So the the worshipers start going out. They start singing. And what happens? The enemy turns on each other. They destroy one another. But I want to tell you, when was the enemy defeated? It happened when they began to worship. And so too, our enemy, Satan, the devil, he hates worship. The Bible tells us that that Satan was an angel who there in heaven wanted to be worshipped like God. And so God ended up thrusting him out of heaven and all the angels who joined with him, they became the demonic forces that the Bible speaks of today. But Our enemy, Satan, he hates it when people worship God. It's like fingers on the chalkboard to him. It's like the the drill in the dentist chair. I mean, he just doesn't want to hear it. Because Satan is always seeking who he can get to worship him, be it directly or indirectly. So he hates it. When he comes into a setting like this and he sees people who are just getting vertical and lifting up the name of Jesus, it's like, man, I can't handle this. I'm out of here. Drives him nuts. This is what worship does. It delights our father. It develops our church family. It defeats our foe. And the last thing is worship does is it declares our faith. That's what I want to do today. I want to end our time this morning before we head to communion. I want us to end our time today by looking at and considering six Hebrew words for praise that give us some insight into how we are to praise the Lord. 
Who's ready to learn some Hebrew today? All right. Okay, here we go. The first word is the word Barak. Everybody say Barak. It's used over 300 times in the Old Testament, and it's a word that means to bow down in humility silently. The idea is I am so in awe of God, I'm so overwhelmed in who he is and what he has done that that the only thing I can think to do, just being this so overwhelmed by him, is just to come and bow prostrate before him and not say anything. That's what this word Barak is speaking of. It speaks of humbling ourselves. And I tell you this all the time. We're told in James as well as in 1 Peter that, that God says, humble yourselves before me. And it says that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble, those who humble themselves. And I don't know about you, I need all the grace I can get, right? Humble yourselves in coming before him. This is that idea of, of Barak. It's coming and just being pro- humbling ourselves. It was William Temple who said this, true worship is the most selfless of emotions our nature is capable of and is therefore the chief remedy for self-centeredness. Now, I think oftentimes the reason why we don't worship is because we're too self-absorbed. We're all focused on ourselves. We're all thinking about, you know, we come into a space like this and we're thinking, yeah, I, wonder what, I wonder what he's thinking about me. I wonder what they're thinking about me. Here, l- listen, just news for you. No one's thinking about you. <laughs> the reason is, is we're too busy thinking about us. We're too pre- preoccupied with us. But when we come and humble ourselves and come before the Lord in that way, it's like we're, we're it's, it's, it's coming in humility and it's like we're dying to self and declaring him to be our king. So Barak, the second word is yada. Everybody say yada. yada. It means to throw out the hands. And it's used in several psalms. And this, this is, uh, the idea of this is to throw out the hands in a sense of seeking to touch the throne of God. It's, a, it's the throwing out the hands in this kind of way where we're just like going, God, you are the king. It's like what you do when, when a king comes that you're just, you know, it's this type of thing. This majesty It's just expressing our, ourselves in, in this type of way of just declaring his greatness. But it's interesting. The third word is the word tada. Everybody say tada. And it also involves the hands. Tada means to lift our hands. In fact, it's the most common word today in Israel to say thank, thank you. And it speaks of lifting our hands in thanks to God for what he's doing, for what he's done, for how he's worked. You know, these flowers up here today are, because, are in, in put here because yesterday was a memorial service and there were four people that gave their lives to Christ in that memorial service. And so it's a way and things like that, just saying, yes, Lord, awesome. Lord, we praise you. Lord, you are so incredible. And so the outward lifting of our hands really speaks of the inward lifting of the heart. In fact, it was Jeremiah in the book of Lamentations who said, uh, let us lift up our heart with our hands. Well, we can't pull our heart out and lift it up like this to God. But in essence, when we're doing this in in this type of way, it's like saying, Lord, I'm surrendering to you. Here's my heart. 
I'm so thankful to you. Lord, here's my heart. And what we're learning from this is that worship is meant to be a full body experience, church. You know, we're told to love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we express that through our voices. We express that with our hands. We express that with our feet. It's expressing ourselves to God for who He is. And with the hands, we can demonstrate so many things. When we want to declare that the Lord's our King, like I said, we, we, we can do this. We can throw out our hands and, in this type of way. When we want to say, Lord, I want to be surrendered to you. You know, what do you do when somebody goes, stick them up? You put your hands up like this, right? You know, so it's, Lord, I'm surrendered to you. What does a little boy or girl do when they want their daddy to pick them up? They put out their hands like this, daddy, I want to be close to you. Pick me up. And so in worship, as we put up our hands like, like this, we're, we're, we're saying that, Lord, here, pick me up. Lord, I, I love you. It's a full body experience. And sometimes, you know, people can come into a setting like this and wonder, like, why are these people raising their hands? Because it's biblical. It's biblical for us to do that. It's what the Bible tells us to do in, in worship, that we're lifting up our hands. The fourth word is zamar. Everybody say zamar. It speaks of instrumental praise. Again, used in several of the Psalms, and it means, it means to touch the strings. Now, David, who wrote a lot of the Psalms, was a worship leader, and he was inventing all the time uh, worship uh, instruments. And the Bible speaks of stringed instruments. It speaks of the lute and the harp and trumpets that were used in praise. And those were the most popular instruments of their day. So it would make all the sense in the world that we would use the most popular instruments of our day in the same way, right? To worship the Lord. And here's what's interesting. Over and over again, we're told concerning the musical instruments to make a loud noise in worshiping God. And some of you are thinking right now, not too loud, Pastor Rob, not too loud. <laughs> and our sound team works really, really hard. They use a DBI machine that, you know, checks the, le- the volume levels to make, you know, it's taller. But the idea, because we want it to be a harmonious sound, not just a loud sound, but a harmonious sound. And here's something really cool, too, as we lift up our voices and harmonious sound. And some of you are thinking, well, I don't, I don't sing very well. And, and you know what? You're right. You don't. But, uh, <laughs> but neither do I. I've literally had a few times people, I, I'd say to them, you know, have you ever heard this song? And I start to sing it, and they say, not like that. <laughs> but I believe... I believe that when we lift up our voices to God, that before it reaches heaven, before it reaches his ears, it becomes a harmonious sound. You know why? Because what he's listening for is right here, the heart. The heart. Your heart, my heart being in the right place. Lift up our voices. Lift up the instruments. The fifth word is the word halal. Everybody say halal. Halal. 
which is the most common word for praise found in the Bible. It's used 160 times in the Old Testament and in a third of the Psalms. It's the root word for the root word hallelujah, which literally means praise the Lord. But get this, this word halal means to shout and to celebrate and to rave and to boast and to sing loudly. And so it's describing this radical outward expression a real letting go. Now, I've had people tell me, well, Pastor Rob, you know, I'm, I, I'm kind of a more reserved person. That's okay. That's okay. You be as radical as you can be in your reservedness, okay? So your 10 might be somebody else's too, but that, that's okay, you know? But here's what oftentimes just makes me scratch my head. I had a friend in our church in Oregon, real reserved guy, real reserved, except when we would go together to a Portland Trailblazers basketball game. <laughs> then he'd get crazy, yelling and screaming and jumping up and down. I like look at him like, who is this person, you know? And I think if we can, you know, get that excited about guys throwing a little ball in a little hoop, making way too much money to do it, we should be able to get as excited, and even more so, for Jesus. Hello, loud, shout, celebrate. But let me say this, we have to be careful. Let's be careful, and here's why. Sometimes, as in our excitement, we can get so excited that we become the center of attention. And that's never the purpose in worship. To get people suddenly where they're distracted from doing this, that they're looking at us and they're thinking and they're going like, why is he doing that? Why is she doing that? Why is, you know, and, and that's where we just have to be very, very careful in these type of settings because we want to be expressive. And I'm going to encourage you, let's be expressive with our hands and our heart and our voices, but also let's be careful that we don't do anything that takes the tension off of his glory and starts moving us, moving people's thoughts to who we are and what we're doing. Amen? Can I get an amen to that? Okay. The last word is the word Shabbat. Everybody say Shabbat. It's a word that means to commend, to triumph, to glory, to shout with a loud voice. Now, here's what's interesting. In all these six words that I just gave you, all of them but Barak are words that speak of very expressive, outward, whether it's hands, voices, volume, praise to God. That's what God desires. Someone said this, that loud praise is not because God is deaf or hard of hearing or far away, but it's because he deserves great commendation. His glory and majesty are worthy of our praise. It's meant to be expressive. I want to close today by just really quickly sharing a story out of John chapter 12 where we see a beautiful expression of really extravagant worship. It happens when Jesus comes to the city of Bethany, to the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, three uh, siblings. 
And as he's there in their house, Mary does something that just blows everybody away. In fact, it actually offends some of the disciples where it says she takes a very costly bottle of perfume. Some people think it was so costly it could be like a year's wage. It might have been her dowry. She takes it, she breaks it open, she pours it over the head of Jesus. It runs down his clothes and onto his feet. And then she starts to go and wipe his feet with her hair. Some of the disciples say, what are you, what, why, is, why is she doing that? This is a waste. That, that could have been sold and the money given to the poor. And Jesus says, hey, the poor you have with you always, but you're not going to have me with you always. And you need to let her alone because she's did this in preparation for my burial. You see, in just a few days from that, Jesus was going to be going to the cross where he's going to give his life. He'd been telling his disciples, they're going to Jerusalem, they're going to crucify me, I'm going to give them my life, but three days later I'm going to rise again from the dead. And it's like it went in one ear and out the other, all his disciples, except for Mary. She clued in. And on this particular day, she felt moved to go and do this very extravagant expression of worship. And Jesus rebukes those who were seeking to rebuke her and says, leave her alone. She's doing this for my burial. And wherever this story is told, she's going to be remembered. And here we are, you know, over 2,000 years later talking about it again. But here's what I want you to catch. This is what's interesting. When Mary poured that fragrance on Jesus, the fragrance that was on Jesus suddenly filled the whole house. That smell. That's often what happens when worship is in our heart. The fragrance, it fills our house. But here's also what's interesting is that as Mary poured that on Jesus and then began to wipe his feet with her hair, the fragrance that was on Jesus was now on Mary. So that from everywhere, from that point forward that day and maybe even the next day, that everywhere Mary went, she smelled like Jesus. She smelt like the Lord. And imagine, church, imagine what would happen if you and I started starting our days with worship, with moments of just expressing our gratitude to the Lord pausing to just thank him for what he has done for us, what he has saved us from, and what he has saved us to. If we started our day like that, imagine what would happen. You know, we live in this world where there's so much criticalness and so much skepticism. And it has a way of just rubbing off on us where we become just these critical, negative people. But what would happen? I said this Wednesday night, that one of the things that just I, I just really don't get is grumpy Christians. Eeyore Christians, you know? Like Eeyore, they're just like, you know, oh, just nothing, everything's so bad in my life, you know, kind of thing. Guys, we have so much to be thankful for. We have so much to celebrate. And if you're drawing a blank right now, let me just tell you this, you're going to heaven. And get this, get this, you were going to hell, okay? But now you're going to heaven. You've been saved. You know God. We have so much to be thankful for. So imagine what would happen if we started our days in just that way, 
and giving thanks. Imagine how it would change our countenance, our demeanor, our perspective. I I would venture to say that a lot of us would have people around us saying, man, why are you so happy? And we get a chance to tell them, let me tell you about my Jesus. We can tell them, you know what, I'm going to heaven. I was going to hell and now I'm going to heaven and you can go there too, you know. Imagine what would happen. I think it would be incredible. So worship. It declares our faith. It defeats our foe. It develops our church family. And it delights our heavenly Father. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we thank you so much. That, Lord, you have given us this beautiful vessel. An opportunity that we have to come into your presence, to declare your greatness, to get centered, to put everything in perspective. We thank you, Lord, for the work that Jesus did in dying on the cross. And as we celebrate that now in communion, as we partake of the the bread, we're remembering your body that was broken for us, that took the punishment that we deserve. As we partake today of the cup, Lord, we're remembering of how your blood cleanses us from all sin, makes us white as snow, that you take sinful people who were lost and doomed, and you now, through faith in Jesus, declare us to be righteous. And Lord, we we celebrate that today as we partake of communion. And if you're here today and you've never put your faith in Jesus He died for you. He loves you. He desires to do a work in your heart. I just want to encourage you to just tell him today, Jesus, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. And I'm ready today to turn from my sin and I want to turn to you and I want to follow you. And he's going to meet you right now in this moment. As the band begins to lead us in worship, today we're doing self-serve communion. So the communion elements are up front. I just want to encourage you, as you feel led, you can get up out of your seat and come and partake of the communion elements. If you're in a place today that you're just feeling this need and this desire to to practice that Barak of worship and just come and kneel down up front here, feel free to do that. Carpet is padded. And just come in and just humbling yourselves before the Lord. I want to encourage you to lift up your hands. Let's just take what we learned today and just put this into practice as we take the next maybe 10 minutes or so and just lift up our hearts, our hands, our voices in declaring the greatness of our King Jesus.